ever want to be like in front of an audience, like other than like squirrels, dogs, and dead peasants? Oh shoot! From time to time, I've been giving it a thought of two. You know, if you go to joke workshop. There's more than two peoples paying attention to your jokes, and they ain't even gonna be jerks about it. Daryl, are you serious? I can get people to listen to my jokes? And they'll even say nice things to you before they tell you how to get improvements. No way. What is this dag nabbit thing called? It's Joke Workshop. Joke Workshop? Yep, every Monday, 6 to 8 p.m. on the Mutant Radius. So you're saying I could tell my jokes every Monday from 6 to 8? That's what I'm saying. It's the Joke Workshop Mondays, 6 to 8 p.m. at the Mutant Radius. Yahoo! <laughs>
That was uh, Ronnie Gilbert and uh, Holly Near singing the uh, classic uh, Goodnight Irene, the song of the uh, dock workers in New Orleans, listened to and written down by and performed by Hudy Ledbetter. And in this case, uh, Ronnie Gilbert, one of the original weavers. 1949, number one hit in the U.S., Irene Goodnight. Good morning to you and welcome. Hope you had a good week and good work. We're uh, broadcasting at you from 2781 21st Street, the Meeting Radio Studios. And the show is Labor and Love. And today we're all about women, the anniversary of the uh, granting of women's suffrage, August 28th. We'll have more about that later. What else have we got? A basic income, sort of a new idea in economic discussion, but also a very old idea. Tesla importing workers. Um, companies contract workers, charge maybe $100 an hour for their work to big companies and pay them about five. Pretty good, pretty good right up there. Women's equality, the uh, historical perspective. Why janitors at Dell don't get a uh, wage increase when all the other Silicon Valley companies have agreed with their the janitors union. Workers of the world faint? Anyway, yak, yak, yak. Let's play some music. Uh, Willie Dixon, 
blues speak of so many things and making a kind of variety of the program. It requires a lot of different facts of life that we must know about. And when you think about the various nations of the earth, the various religions of the earth, the various nationalities, the various people all over the world, we have been able to make anything that we want to make and do anything we want to do. Have created miracles. But it don't make sense when we can't make peace. You know, you made everything else. Wise men, great men from every nation in the world, all the countries in the world have all kinds of conventions and festivals. Spend all the money. Suppose you had to spend half as much money on trying to make peace as you have been making war. We wouldn't have to worry about nothing. But it don't make sense. It don't make sense. It don't make sense when you can't make peace. Go to the 
the moon and come back thrilled. Now it's Willie Dixon. You can do all these great things, but it don't make sense if you can't make peace. Welcome to Mutiny Radio, and welcome to Saturday Morning, the Labor of Love show, where we tell you how it is. That if one person gets a dollar they didn't work for, as an investment perhaps, somebody else worked for a dollar they didn't get. Also, if you don't have a seat at the table, the negotiating table that is, you're probably on the menu. And third, never but never let anyone into your heart not a friend of labor. And when I say labor, I mean you. Okay, I said it all today. We're uh, talking about labor and we're talking about women. Women getting the right to vote. And women uh, first achieved the right in 1923. But let's read this. There's a little... uh, Let's look for Wikipedia. How's that? Um, This is the B, and I'm going to play something now for you. We had uh, Willie Dixon there with his uh, peace song. Very nice Saturday morning song, I think. Um... And here's something a little more lighthearted. With pedestrian detection, the 2017 Hyundai Elantra, not just new, better. Okay. Music of social significance. 
I'm tired of moon songs, of star and of June songs. They simply make me nap. And ditties romantic drive me nearly frantic. I think they're all full of pap. History's making, nations are quaking. Why sing of stars above? For while we are waiting, Father Time's creating new things to be singing of. Sing me a song with social significance. All other tunes are taboo. I want a ditty with heat in it, appealing with feeling and meat in it. Sing me a song with social significance, or you can sing till you're blue. Let meaning shine from every line, or I won't love you. Sing me of wars and sing me of breadlines. Tell me of front page news. Sing me of strikes and last minute headlines. Dress your observation in syncopation. Sing me a song with social significance. There's nothing else that will do. It must get hot with what is what, or I won't love you. I want a song that's satirical, putting the mirror into miracle. Tell me of mills and mines. Sing me of courts that aren't impartial. What's to be done with them? Tell me in rhythm. Sing me a song with social significance. There's nothing else that will do. It must be tense with common sense, or I won't love you. Thank you. 
Okay, that was uh, Glenn Miller sort of snuck that one in. Um, one of my mom's favorite songs. Today we're all about women on October 26th, 1920. Uh, women in the United States were granted the right to vote. There's a little CNN article. Friday marks the 45th anniversary of Women's Equality Day, designated in 1971 to commemorate the 1920 passage of the 19th Amendment, which gave women the right to vote. But voting was only the beginning for some women's rights advocates who pivoted in the 1920s to the larger issue of enshrining equal rights in the Constitution. Penned by Alice Paul, the Equal Rights Amendment was first introduced to Congress in 1923 by Representative Daniel R. Anthony, nephew of women's suffrage leader Susan B. Anthony. Anthony's 1923 proposal didn't pass. In fact, it was very polarizing, even among women. Eleanor Roosevelt, for instance, opposed the ERA for many years. One of the major objections at the time was questioning how the ERA would impact protective labor legislation. Rules that guarded against issues like unfair hours or dangerous work conditions for women. If you have an amendment that says men and women are completely equal under the eyes of the law, what does that do to those protections that have already been instilled, specifically based on gender? The ERA was introduced in the next 49 consecutive sessions of Congress until 1972 when it passed and was sent to the states for ratification. It was most recently introduced to both cha chambers of Congress in May of 2015. Representative Carol Mooney of New York, almost 100 years after women were granted the right to vote, it is past time to enshrine full equality for all the Constitution and ratify the ERA. At any rate, women granted the suffrage. It always sounds funny. And better. Say, uh, the 27th. Given the right to vote. Right? I mean, given the right to vote. Okay. Listen to the uh, Win News Review. One of our regular features is uh, news about the labor movement, both nationally and internationally. So this is the Win Labor Report for this week. Workers Independent News We Can Review. For Win, I'm Joanne Powers. 
The National Labor Relations Board ruled Tuesday that Columbia University graduate students and grad student workers at all private U.S. universities have the right to form a union and collectively bargain over wages and working conditions. Olga Brudastova, a Ph.D. student at Columbia and an organizer with the Graduate Workers of Columbia University, Local 2110 of the United Auto Workers, of course, it's really exciting. The majority of grad student workers want a union. We expect our relationship with the administration to be much easier, much less frustrating, and to have less anxieties in our workly life. In a victory for California teachers, the state Supreme Court on Monday declined to review the Vergara v. California case. This allows a unanimous appellate court decision to stand. California Teachers Association President Eric Hines teachers would have lost their due process and therefore they could be fired at will, which means they would have very little protections. Teachers would no longer be able to stand up for students. That would basically silence our voices. You don't improve learning by taking away teachers' rights. On Monday, the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals in San Francisco ruled that companies cannot force workers to abide by agreements requiring them to use private arbitration and give up their right to file a class action lawsuit over workplace issues. Tara Zumer was fired from office-sharing company WeWork for refusing to sign an arbitration agreement. In the wake of Monday's court decision, the board took steps to address her case on Thursday. Honestly, I'm hoping one day that the Supreme Court will rule that it's absolutely illegal for a company to prevent employees from collective action, which is really what arbitration agreements do. They make it much cheaper and easier for a company to fight individuals one at a time instead of as a group. To force people into a private system that is unregulated is pretty terrifying. The U.S. Department of Justice announced August 18th that it would stop using private prisons. Maria Robolino is a senior program specialist with the Civil, Human, and Women's Rights Department of the AFL-CIO. I really want to applaud this initiative. I definitely believe that our criminal justice system can never be fair while there is money to be made in locking individuals up. The entire labor movement will continue to fight until incarcerated people are treated with dignity and every man and woman who works inside corrections has a safe job that gives them dignity as well. About 250 farm workers flooded the California state capitol in Sacramento Thursday morning to lobby members of the state assembly to pass legislation that would guarantee them overtime pay. United Farm Workers of America spokesman Mark Grossman. Farm workers are packing the assembly galleries and the halls of the state capitol. And for them, it's not just the money, although that's certainly important. It's also a basic issue of equity and ending a terrible 78-year injustice. You've been listening to Win Workers Independent News. For more information, visit laborradio.org. Okay, that was our Win Labor Report. What we've got now is um, one important piece of labor news this week was that the state Supreme Court declined to. Uh, hear an appeal of a ruling called Vergara. And Vergara was brought by a teacher in Los Angeles <clears throat> against the teachers' union. And it was a case in which uh, big right-wing money was used. You know, top, top drawer lawyers and, and uh, organizations. Um, they got kids to testify against their teachers and... The point, their point was that teacher seniority system, in other words, uh, job security based on seniority, 
militated against good education because it kept bad teachers in their uh, it kept them it kept them in their jobs when they should have been kicked out um, first of all contracts only give um, only guarantee due process anyway let's listen to this this is the union edge and they're talking about this very issue Welcome back. I'm Charles Showalter. You're listening to Union Edge Labor's Talk Radio. Thank you very much for tuning in. We appreciate you hanging out with us for the afternoon, that's for sure. Hey, folks, take the opportunity to go to our website, www.theunionedge.com. Download the free app for your iPhone or your Android, or take a look at the really cool swag that we have on the website. We appreciate that very much. Joining us now from Media Matters, uh, we've got research coordinator Julie Alderman. Julie, welcome back. Thanks for having me. Always a pleasure. We appreciate it. Now, Julie, this is uh, a little bit troubling for me. Wall Street (laughs) Journal's pushing flawed talking points about teachers' union hurt students of color. What? So... Set the scene. There was a um, big decision from California Supreme Court on Monday, and they decided not to rehear this case that has to do with job protections for teachers at um, public schools in the state. So that includes like tenure and like layoff and dismissal policies. Those aren't going to be touched, which is a really big win for unions, teachers' unions. So right. Wall Street. Wall Street Journal editorial board, which is notoriously conservative and anti-union, writes this um, writes an editorial yes in yesterday's paper that um, claims that um, this ruling is going to deny upward mobility to poor black and Hispanic children because it's going to keep bad teachers in their jobs. Well, okay, obviously our friends with the Wall Street Journal have some kind of malady that 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 allows them or stops them from reading simple things like contracts yeah there there yeah i mean in the contract there is progressive discipline um and if the school district does not follow progressive discipline to remove a bad teacher um it doesn't happen exactly and um i mean there's like economic besides common sense there's economic studies behind this that show that strong unions and highly unionized districts it raises the average teacher quality and improves student achievement um beyond that i mean there's so many things wrong with this and that's It's ridiculous. Beyond that, like unionized areas and children whose parents belong to unions and who live in areas where there's a high level of union membership, they do better in school. So by keeping unions in place, you're creating more of, you know, a bigger community where these children live in these highly unionized areas, which is good for them. And you're getting better teachers, which is going to help them in school. And stronger unions are connected with, like, more equitable school funding and mm-hmm. not which um, helps erase the disparity in student achievement um, based on race. 
Right. And, and oh, by the way, SAT scores coming out of unionized schools are better than non-unionized schools. And Just on saying. top of this, like teachers' unions often push for racial or for more um, racial and gender equality in their community. They're not. It's not a self-interest group. It's people who really care about their communities and care about things like racial equality and closing that achievement gap between um, between different groups of students. And it's just, <laughs> they clearly do not have their facts straight if that's how they're going to characterize this decision. So when is the Wall Street Journal going to print its retraction, apologize, and tell us the truth? Um, you know, I can't say, but I wouldn't hold my breath. You mean they're they're not in the business of telling us facts? Um, I think it's very possible that um, you know there's just they don't back up this opinion with any facts, and you know. Well, what about the information they're providing us on the stock market? Are they providing us with well, information and facts? Be, there? <laughs> to be fair, that's the that's not the editorial board, but they clearly has selective hearing, and sometimes that selective hearing picks up things that are just not true. Right, and, 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 and I agree, and I'm being a little bit facetious here, but, I mean, really, Julie, when we are confronted with this type of thing, mm -hmm. we should push back, yes? Yep, and that's exactly why we keep doing what we're doing. There you go. Now, when you guys reported out, and we appreciate all the wonderful stuff that you're doing, what is it a consumer of news like myself and many others should be doing to get the Wall Street Journal back on the correct, or let me rephrase it, the Wall Street Journal editorial board back on the correct track? I think it's just pushing out the facts. You know, anytime you see a statement in um, the paper that's unsubstantiated, that they don't back up with facts, anytime they're making a broad statement that they don't have evidence for, that's suspicious. And that's why they're, A, they're being lazy, B, they don't have facts to back it up, or C, both. Well, there um, you go. And, um, you know, I, I got to tell you, I think you're right on this. Um, and we have to do that. And I mean, if it's picking up a phone call, it's picking up the phone and making a call, if it's writing a letter or sending a telegram or whatever, we got to do that. Yes? Yeah. There exactly. we go. Exactly. Smoke signals work too, I think. <laughs> it all depends upon their technology, but that's another story. Hey, uh, Julie, it's always a pleasure. How do we find out more about you and what you do for Media Matters? Um, so you can go to our website, mediamatters.org, like us on Facebook. You can follow us on Twitter, at MMFA. And my personal Twitter, where I tweet out a lot of our stuff, is at Julie Alderman with an underscore at the end. There you go. And, friends, i got to tell you, we're having lots of fun here. Julie, it's always a pleasure. I appreciate it. Very quickly, what are you working on today? Um, you know, we have a big speech coming up from Hillary Clinton tomorrow about the alt-right and um, basically who is feeding Trump's campaign and giving him his talking points. So that's going to be a fun one, and we're going to have a lot on our plate. Yeah, there we go. We appreciate it. Look forward to talking again here soon. Keep up the great work, and we'll catch you later, okay? All right. Thanks for having me. Fantastic. Julie Alderman of Media Matters. I'm Charles Showalter. You're listening to the Union Edge Labor's Talk Radio.
Okay, that was a uh, um, Union Edge, uh, Union radio station out of the Midwest. And they were taking up the question, which the Wall Street Journal claims that teacher um, due process means that kids don't get a good education. The argument is one that a lot of people who know little about education uh, take up. But it's a false one. The, the best districts, when the teachers are doing well, then the kids are doing well. Okay, when there's, when people are getting paid a living wage and um, go to work in good conditions where they have some say about the quality of their work, quality of their lives at work, then those districts do better. It's kind of a no-brainer, but... Uh, I guess there are a lot of people who don't have brains. Okay, let's see. Let's. We've got a um, couple of stories here that have to do with labor. Very interesting. This one is called a basic income, and this is from the Nation magazine. And the headline says, a basic income would up in America's work ethic, and that's a good thing. That's a kind of a new issue or an issue that hasn't been up there for in the argument or what people say, oh, the conversation about economics in this country. Um We've been ruled for years by archaic economic ideas, particularly the claim that a healthy dose of economic austerity is the best way to get economies' engines firing again. It is a zombie idea. Today, one of those buried ideas is enjoying a well-deserved revival, basic income, the idea that every citizen is entitled to an income sufficient to cover basic needs. It seems to be one of the few radical reform ideas that appeal to people on both ends of the political spectrum. The Cato brothers, the Koch brothers' favorite think tank, the Cato Institute, has revisited the idea and former SEIU head Andy Stern has written a book about it. Historically, market luminaries such as Frederick Hayek, Milton Friedman, and Charles Murphy have given rhetorical support to the idea because of their hostility to welfare state programs. They hope to replace them with a basic income, though a punitively small one. So... That's the conservative argument, that we give everybody a basic income and then they can't uh, ask for anything else. Um, so it's an idea. Check it out. It's on the Nation website. And what it would mean... Let's see, what... 
Could it be that people are afraid of being freed from wage work, even from a portion of wage work? What would they do with their newfound free time? Watch television or play with their iPhone? A shorter work week or no work week would make a rich leisure life possible, and it would make a dense social life possible. There would be time to invest in our communities and time to care for one another, and especially to care for the young, the old, and the sick. But if the patterns of that leisure, the elements of that community, have become invisible to us, well, maybe everybody might as well go to work for whatever camaraderie the workplace provides. Interesting idea, basic income for everyone. Case that's close to home here. And this is in the Mercury News, the San Jose Silicon Valley story. Tesla CEO Elon Musk vows to probe findings in this newspaper's investigation. Let's see what it's about. Contractors imported workers using questionable visas and paid them as little as $5 an hour. How did this happen? Meet Gregor Lesnick, one of the foreign workers. Like many of the imported workers, he is from Slovenia. He was lured by the promise of a good American job. journey, told through interviews and court documents, reveals a dark side of U.S. labor practices. Number one, a questionable visa. Slovenia Lesnik was an unemployed electrician. He was hired for a job in the United States. From there, a chain of international companies aided his journey. European companies arranged for a temporary business visa citing a need for specialized skills. His visa application listed him as a supervisor. When he got to Tesla, he supervised no one. He simply installed ventilation pipes. U.S. immigration law broadly bans workers from performing such hands-on job, those workers. Number two, very low pay. Sometimes they work 10 hours a day, six days a week without over receiving overtime. He's paid in euros, earning about $5 an hour. That's far below the $52 an hour paid in the Bay Area for similar work. After three months, he fell 30 feet through the factory roof. He broke both legs, several ribs, and hit his head so hard he lost consciousness. In 
injured and unable to work, he was pressured to return home by his Slovenian employer. Instead, he hired a lawyer. He's suing several companies, including Tesla, for back wages and damages. In November, Lesnik returned to Slovenia. He wants justice for himself and more than 100 of his co-workers. Number three, no one takes the blame. Tesla says it employs nearly 6,000 workers at its factory. It relied on the expertise of contractors to upgrade the plane. Tesla didn't hire, Tesla didn't hire Lesnick. Its contractor did, though so it denies responsibility. The contractor, Eisenman, says that Tesla hired the workers. There's another subcontractor, Eastley Wusen. They pass the ball around. Tesla has been rating, racing to meet unbelievable sales. Did it cheap from, benefit from cheap labor along the way? Looks like it, huh? That was a little slideshow about uh, Tesla. Um, San Jose Mercury News. Gregor Lesnik, 42-year-old Slovenian labor who was seriously injured in a 2015 factory accident. Um, the story is that Tesla hired one at least 140 imported workers to build a paint shop on B1, B2 visas for substandard wages. In other words, they were supposed to be uh, supervisors and not do hands-on work under a B-1, B-2 uh, visa. Tesla Motors CEO Elon Musk tweeted Sunday evening that he had just heard about the story. Sounds like the wrong thing happened on many levels, Musk wrote. We'll investigate and make it right. There's, this is kind of a racket now, um, all over the world, globalization, as bodies of people are hired, workers, sort of almost anonymously promised good jobs in the U.S. and then brought here to do peace work. Uh, and in this case, the guy fell and got hurt, and he's suing for uh, damages. This is kind of a new phenomenon. In order to not to pay uh, prevailing wages, in order to get work done as cheaply as possible, uh, contractors find people to come and work. Um, they promise them good jobs in America, and... They're paid $5 an hour when sometimes the contractors are paid $100. $100. So, workers $5 an hour, you know, he's producing for you, plus you keep the $95 of the $100 an hour you're being paid. What a racket. 
know, it's uh, breathtaking. Breathtaking what uh, people will do. Let's play some music. We've got several stories like that that illuminate the conditions of uh, workers in this country. How about um, Queen Latifah? There's plenty of people out there with triggers ready to pull 
front of the bullet, young lady. Uh. And real bad girls are the silent type. Yeah. Ain't none of this work getting your face sliced. Cause that's what happened to your homegirl, right? Walking with no she got the weird ass for life. Who you calling a bitch? Should be good. That's groovy.
Betty Carter, in honor, as I said, of Mr. Tony Bennett, uh, 90 years old, 90 years young, whatever, this last week, uh, always a friend of working people and <clears throat> an artist, painter in his own right, the good life, Betty Carter. And then we had uh, Nina Simone. Ain't gotten. I got life. Everything Nina Simone sings seems like a song of liberation. And before that, unity with the rapper Queen Latifah, now actress, now one of the most sought-after actresses, uh, I guess, in Hollywood, whatever that means. Uh, in other words, a. Uh, uh, someone who's really risen to prominence, been in several good movies, and does speak up on behalf of uh, social justice. Question. Now, Silicon Valley is awash in money. I mean, it's become the world headquarters of the world's number one industry. Uh, but they still won't pay a living wage to some people. This is um, Mercury News again. Thanks to a new contract, Reynalda Rangel was looking forward to her pay going up $1 an hour for her work as a swing shift janitor at Dell's campus in Santa Clara. You ever wonder when you go into a bank or into an office how clean and spick and span it is. <clears throat> Who did that? Whose work made that appearance? 
Instead, Rangel, who has cleaned at the campus for more than three years, saw her hourly pay drop from $14 to $11.50. Same job, less pay. What happened at Dell is something I thought was mostly in the past. For years, tech firms distanced themselves from taking care of the gardeners, security guards, and other service workers who helped keep their campuses running. They hired contract firms or relied on building management companies to deal with pay, benefits, and conditions for those workers. When labor disputes arose, the tech companies would say, it's got nothing to do with us. And yeah, we, we know how that is with the uh, shoe companies based in um, low-wage areas of the world. If the workers who actually do the work are treated badly, they say it's not their fault. In this case of Tesla, the, the contracting company charged $55 an hour for the workers that it was bringing in, in this case from Slovenia. And they're paying them $5 an hour. That's a $50 write-up. Okay, the write-up is, uh, you know, 91%. It's amazing. Um, 900%. Okay. This sentiment began to change more than two decades ago when labor and janitors won their first contracts as part of the successful Justice for Janitors campaign. The biggest win was impressing on many tech companies that they had some responsibility for what happened inside their workplaces, even if they contracted with outside firms for janitorial service. Now, many tech firms play a role in negotiations, putting pressure on contractors that hire janitors to resolve such negotiations. In some cases, tech companies pay higher than the agreed-upon contracts, say union representatives. No tech firm in Silicon Valley, where the haves and have-nots live in two separate worlds, wants service workers protesting in front of their offices. But that's what Dell got this summer. In May, the union representing 8,000 janitorial workers in the San Francisco Bay Area won a contract with 23 janitorial service firms. Under the new contract, the hourly wage would rise from at least $13.50 to $15 for some workers. Benefits also improved, including increased job protections. Of the many companies, including Google, Facebook, Apple, Adobe, and Genentech, where these janitors work, only one office switched janitorial service providers to get a cheaper price after the new contract was approved. Dell. In a statement, Dell said that this is an issue between the union and a subcontractor. In other words, the same old argument. It's not us, it's the contractor. 
Dell is committed to responsible business practices and to high standards of ethical behavior. Exactly what happened is a matter of some dispute. CBRE backs up Dell, this is the uh, contractor, saying the change was made after a competitive process involving a number of firms. Okay, so it's the, the contract is between the building superintendent, the building uh, manager. Dell is playing with, playing with people's lives, said Rangel, through a translator. It's okay to break from the pack and go one's old, own way when it comes to creating new technology or business models, as Dell did when it sold computers online back in the 1990s. But in this case, the company should keep up with its Silicon Valley competitors. The responsible thing to do is to pay the people who clean the cubicles and conference rooms the living wage they fought for. Okay, so we can see in Silicon Valley, we've got uh, Tesla, we've got uh, Dell. These companies are making, trying to make their money out of cheap labor. Cheap labor, that's why your employer is always against you making more. He wants you to be cheap or she wants you to be cheap so they can afford more of you and make more money. Imagine charging $50 an hour, $55 an hour for a worker's time and then turning around and paying them $5 an hour? Boy, you know, something stinks and what it is is profit profit stinks if it's made off the lives of people of people's sweat and tears temp organizing gets a big best boost from the NLRB this is on Portside August 23rd and the subtitle says the new joint employer standard provides a much more favorable legal framework for workers to form unions at tempt out warehouses, manufacturing and food processing plants, recycling facilities, hotels and franchise janitorial service and fast food outlets. Thanks to a National Labor Relations Board decision Workers employed by temporary staffing agencies may find it easier to organize and bargain. The board issued its long-awaited ruling last August in the case of a Browning Ferris Industries. The decision revamped the board's test for what's considered a joint employer, imposing new legal obligations on employers who hire through temp agencies. 
Okay, so the NLRB is saying that this is uh, a collective responsibility, not just the building management or the contractor who brings the workers um, or the parent company, the big corporation that is maybe two layers away from uh, the actual workplace. So the NLRB has made it easier for workers to organize by sort of calling out that collective responsibility of everyone who's involved in the hiring and employment process. Temp agencies accounted for more than 17% of net employment gains after the Great Recession of 2008. <clears throat> so these are the kinds of jobs people are getting now. Temp jobs. Uh, the increase is most dramatic in the blue-collar and low-wage service sectors, where permit temps are used to staff entire departments, job clusters, or facilities. In many auto assembly plants and parts plants, temp agency workers account for more than half the workforce. Temps are often paid as little as half of what regular employees make, with no benefits or paid holidays. Okay, National Labor Relations Board did something. And for that, we are thankful. Sylvia Plath, Daddy, you bastard. You do not do, you do not do any more black shoe in which I have lived like a foot for 30 years, poor and white, barely daring to breathe or chew. Daddy, I have had to kill you. You died before I had time, marble heavy, a bag full of God, ghastly statue with one gray toe big as a Frisco seal and a head in the freakish Atlantic, where it pours bean green over blue in the waters off beautiful Nosset. I used to pray to recover you, ach du, in the German tongue in the Polish town, scraped flat by the roller of wars, wars, wars. But the name of the town is common. My Polak friend says there are a dozen or two so I never could tell where you put your foot, your root. I never could talk to you. The tongue stuck in my jaw. It's stuck in a barbed wire snare. Eeh, 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 eeh. I could hardly speak. I thought every German was you. And the language obscene, an engine, an engine, chuffing me off like a Jew. A Jew to Dachau, Auschwitz, Belsen. I began to talk like a Jew. I think I may well be a Jew. The snows of the Tyrol, the clear beer of Vienna, are not very pure or true. With my gypsy ancestress and my weird luck and my tarok pack and my tarok pack, I may be a bit of a Jew. I have always been scared of you, with your Luftwaffe, your gobbledygoo and your neat moustache and your Aryan eye, bright blue. 
Penzaman, Penzaman, oh you. Not God, but a swastika. So black no sky could squeak through. Every woman adores a fascist, the boot in the face, the brute, brute heart of a brute like you. You stand at the blackboard, Daddy, in the picture I have of you, a cleft in your chin instead of your foot. But no less a devil for that, no not any less the black man who bit my pretty red heart in two. I was ten when they buried you. At twenty I tried to die and get back, back, back to you. I thought even the bones would do. But they pulled me out of the sack and they stuck me together with glue. And then I knew what to do. I made a model of you, a man in black with a Mein Kampf look and a love of the rack and the screw. And I said, I do, I do. So, Daddy, I'm finally through. The black telephone's off at the root. The voices just can't worm through. If I've killed one man, I've killed two. The vampire who said he was you and drank my blood for a year, seven years, if you want to know. Daddy, you can lie back now. There's a stake in your fat black heart and the villagers never liked you. They are dancing and stamping on you. They always knew it was you. Daddy, daddy, you bastard, I'm through.
wants to get into the act, huh? That was Cher, and her song is called Workin' Girl. <clears throat> You've got to take a stand, girl. Uh, let's see, what we have What we have before Cher? We had Daddy by Sylvia Plath. Her kind of uh, indictment. <clears throat> angry indictment of what the male principal the rapist the thug the bully the uh, killer uh, extremely difficult to bring something like that and put it onto paper and make it understandable but in um, Daddy, she really does. This is Labor and Love. You're tuned to Mutiny Radio. And part two of our appreciation of women's suffrage. Historically speaking, the demand began to gather strength in the 1840s. And then um, two organizations... The Anthony Katie Stanton group and the Lucy Stone group were working concurrently for women's suffrage. And uh, there was a phenomenon. Like, I, I always ask people, what was, the, what was the first state to grant the vote to women? And they, you know, they probably guessed more progressive states, but it was Wyoming. And the reason women were granted the vote was that they were white. You needed a certain number of white voters, white citizens, in uh, a new territory, and then you could uh, get statehood. So that's how one way uh, Wyoming got statehood. Um, 
by granting the vote to women in order to have more uh, representation. Hoping the U.S. Supreme Court would rule that women had a constitutional right to vote, suffragettes made several attempts to vote in the early 1870s, then filed lawsuits when they were turned away. Susan B. Anthony actually succeeded in voting in 1872, but was arrested for the act and found guilty in a widely publicized trial that gave the movement fresh momentum, where she said, I won't pay a penny of my fine. In 1916, Alice Paul founded the National Women's Party, a militant group focused on the passage of a national suffrage amendment. Over 200 NWP supporters, the Silent Sentinel, were arrested in 1917 while picketing the White House. Some of them went on hunger strikes and were force-fed while in prison. After a hard-fought series of votes in the U.S. Congress and in state legislatures, the 19th Amendment became part of the U.S. Constitution on August 26, 1920. It states, The right of citizens of the United States to vote shall not be denied or abridged by the United States or by any state on account of sex. So the battle for women's suffrage. And here's a little uh, sidelight. Um, this is a story I reported on a couple of years ago. And uh, some incidents recently brought it to mind again. This was a phenomenon of the fainting workers in Phnom Penh. Just over two years ago at the end, this is in 2014 now, a young worker named Shantul and 250 of her colleagues collapsed in a collective spell of fainting. They had to be hospitalized. The production was shut down. Two days later, the factory was back up and the mass fainting struck again. A worker started barking commands in a language that sounded like Chinese and claiming to speak in the name of an ancestral spirit demanded offerings of raw chicken. None were forthcoming and more workers fell down. Peace and production resumed only after factory owners staged an elaborate ceremony offering up copious amounts of food, cigarettes, and Coca-Cola to the spirit. Amazing. Workers of the world faint. <laughs> okay. Um, so, the spirit represents angst and bad feeling. These spirits represent a village-based morality and are inseparable from the land. So, the spirits are uh, coming forth to help. Let's see. Um, let's play some music. 
Ronnie Gilbert, one of the original uh, Weavers, singing her rendition of uh, House of the Rising Sun. Woman's song if there ever was one. Hmm?
What, what the hell? I got two more bottles of wine. there uh, I caught the tone of the show sort of being more and more somber so uh, I threw in that Emmy Lou Harris hit uh, to say what the hell I got two more bottles of wine this is labor and love and you're listening to the B we're coming at you uh, from mutiny radio mutiny radio FM physical address 2781 21st Street in the heart of the mission. Um, Mutiny Radio is really uh, much more than a radio station. It's an arts center. A lot of open comedy mic here. Um, Actual uh, comic. You can come and try out your material between 
before an audience of comics and they'll give you honest feedback beginning with the positive uh, musicians come through here uh, there's art always art cutting edge art up on the walls and most of all we're community organization we're open we always need more people to come and participate both to be radio programmers but to rent the place for your own events um, let's look at a little of labor history uh, a couple other things I wanted to do today one of them was to read the history of one of the Zapatistas. Um, named Comandante R Ramona. Comandante Ramona died in 2006. Uh, but here's her story. She was an indigenous street seller turned revolutionary leader whose story has given hope and inspiration to thousands of marginalized people all over Mexico. She's from Chiapas, a Mayan Indian, made a meager living selling her embroidery to tourists. She became politicized as she realized that the abject poverty in which her people live, over 60% suffer from malnutrition while forced to grow export cash crops on the fertile land, was not going to improve without a fight. I believe that it's better to die fighting than to die of hunger. And she joined the Zapatista army on January 1st, 1994, as you might remember. The Zapatistas emerged from their headquarters in the Lacandona jungle to take over all the major towns in Chiapas. Ramona was one of the leaders of these actions. The Zapatistas fought, the authorities fought back hard and dirty, but despite setbacks, the Zapatistas continue to this day with their struggle for autonomous indigenous governing. Uh, Ramona was instrumental in forming sub-organizations of the Zapatistas, organizations of women. The demands of the women include childbirth clinics, daycare centers, corn mills, training schools for women, and materials and support to create sustainable small businesses. Ramona was diagnosed with cancer in 1994 and in 1995, she received a kidney transplant that extended her life for over a decade. We want a Mexico that takes us into account as human beings, that respects us and that recognizes our dignity. At the end of her speech in Mexico City in 1996, a Socolo resonated with chants of Ramona, 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 Ramona. Our hope is that one day our situation will change and that we women will be treated with justice, respect, and democracy. 
comandante Ramona, a woman you wouldn't want to mess with. That's from the book Revolutionary Women, published by uh, PM Press. This day in labor history. Let's check it out. Celebrating the one of the largest and well, let's see what this. We're on lawyers, guns, and money, and we're celebrating the Haitian Revolution on August twenty-first, seventeen ninety-one. That's uh, twenty-five. 225 years ago the Haitian Revolution began. The largest and by far the most successful slave rebellion in world history. The Haitian Revolution transformed world history foiling French imperial aims leading to the expansion of the United States placing fear into the hearts of slaveholders across the Western Hemisphere and exposing the limits of the Republican rhetoric of the Enlightenment. It's also a story of the incredible bravery of the slaves themselves. Uh, this is a revolution led by Toussaint Louverture that overthrew the French planters French government sent troops to put the rebellion down and they too were defeated. Um, this, this sent chills of fear through the slave owners of the uh, Western Hemisphere. This was their greatest fear of white planters, and they spent the next seven years talking about how to prevent it. When the British helped slaves escape during the War of 1812, when Denmark Vesey got angry that his church was being repressed, when Nat Turner revolted, when slaves played drums in the forest at night, slavers dreamed of the slaves rising up to massacre them in her bed, in their beds. Given Southern domination of the American politics through most of its history, but especially before the Civil War, they made sure Haiti remained a highly isolated and impoverished nation. Great slaver of Saint Louis. See what else we got. Labor history. Ireland, August 26, 1913. Members of the Irish Transport and General Workers Union in Dublin go on strike for union recognition. The response of the employers is a city-wide lockout. August 28th, 27th, Chad public sector employees call off their strike for higher wages after a campaign of intimidation and repression from the government. Click for more information. This is on uh, Labor Start. 
Um, Jim Larkin, great Irish labor leader, is arrested for seditious speaking on the third day of the Dublin transport strike, but released later that day. Next day, Jim Larkin burned a government proclamation banning public gatherings in front of a meeting of 10,000 workers. Today in labor history, August 25th, 1925, Pullman porters fed up with working long hours for little pay and no job security formed the Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters in New York City. It would be another 12 years before the union signed its first collective bargaining agreement with the Pullman Company. Today in labor history, August 23, 1927, Italian immigrants, labor activists, and anarchist Nicola Sacco and Bartolomeo Vanzetti accused of murder and tried unfairly are executed. The case became an international cause and sparked demonstrations and strikes throughout the world. Today in labor history, August 22, 1945, flight attendants working for United Airlines formed the Airline Stewardesses Association, the first labor union representing flight attendants. They were reacting to an industry in which women were forced to retire at the age of 32, remain single, and adhere to strict weight, height, and appearance requirements. The union later became the Association of Flight Attendants and since 2004 has been part of the CWA, the Communications Workers of America. Okay, 800 Boston police officers went on strike. Uh, they were defeated by Calvin Coolidge who called out the National Guard. This day in labor history, remember you're only alone when you don't stand up. And if you don't stand up, you'll be counted as standing up for sitting down. This is the B, and we're coming at you from 2781 21st Street here in the heart of the mission El Mero Mero uh, just about time for us to go and uh, hand the mic over to Scott Walker with his show um, I want to call out to my daughter Vita and my soulmate Sylvia Ramirez, and I want to dedicate this show to the memories of the workers who died today, 250 here in the U.S., 2,500 worldwide die every day of work-related causes or work-caused conditions. Here's the Internacional. Goodbye and good work, everybody.
Are you tired of swimming through a sea of podcasts? Are ye on a raft without a patter? Well, gather around me, sea dogs, and get aboard me pirate ship as we set sail for the seas of MutinyRadio.fm. From there, you can captain your own pirate ship as you sail through over 44 different shows for all of your listening pleasures. They've got live comedy to small business advice, LGBTQ-friendly to sports, vinyl to gutter punk. MutinyRadio.fm has the best programming the Internet Ocean has to offer you. I bet my peg leg on it, or I ain't scurvy shit-faced McRat. <laughs> Good evening there, my friends, here at MutinyRadio.fm. Chester Cashcock here, and giving you my love and regard as well as movies over there. And uh, I just wanted to let you guys know that any time I go swimming in my vault of rare coins and piles and piles of filthy cash, I can't help but listen to Pamtastic's Comedy Clubhouse every Friday from 8 to 10 p.m. I mean, if anyone who knows anything about comedy knows that Pamtastic's books the best of San Francisco and Beyond's Underground comics. It's a great showcase, and they have a fun time at Pamtastic's Deep in the Mission District, where you can laugh off your tushy for a mere $5 every Friday to 10 p.m.
Welcome to the Weekly Review with Roman. Today is April 29th, 2016. That was Prince with Fury. And I, I like the idea of continuing to play Prince for as long as possible. The Current, which is a wonderful radio station out of Minneapolis, they played all of Prince's catalog in alphabetical order, which was great because um, various parts uh, during those two days when I would listen in, get to hear a chunk of songs and then listen in later on in the day. And Prince is, is still playing and it's awesome to hear songs I'd never heard before as well as those I was familiar with. And that was just really awesome and also just a great way of bonding with people since Prince clearly touched and influenced so many folks. And outside Green Apple Books here in San Francisco, they have dedicated a bench to Prince. They've painted it purple, and I very much look forward to checking it out. So again, celebrating the life and all the art that, that Prince created and shared with us and feeling very fortunate that we are around to experience that. Um, it's it's San Francisco. <laughs> I don't know where else I would be. I guess I could be somewhere else, but that's where we are broadcasting from. We're here in the Mission on 21st in Florida. Yesterday was the 11th annual Poems Under the Dome at City Hall, which I had the privilege of reading at, and that was very cool. And uh, it was my first time there. I'd been to City Hall before, but my first time at Poems Under the Dome. And uh, Supervisor John Avalos had folks in his office ahead of time, which was really cool for this little, not quite party, but a bit of like a celebration, which was awesome. And they had, you know, some drinks and some food. And folks were there gathered, maybe 30 of us. And just to have his office open to people was really cool. And they had a couple folks perform some music. A couple people performed poetry. And John Avalos wrote a po uh, read a poem. And I thought that was really very cool because, and it felt very, I guess, what San Francisco is supposed to be or was, and to, to kind of experience that, to be in this room with some people I knew, some people I didn't, um, in City Hall, uh, to be kind of celebrating and to feel very unified, I thought was really awesome. That was really cool. And the poetry reading itself was, was pretty rad, and it's great just to hear so many people speak and to, to share their words and some really great... Uh, I wouldn't call it necessarily a performance. I mean, it was a performance. There's a there's a great mic out in Oakland, uh, the Queer Open mic on Tuesdays at Perch, and um, they uh, refer to the performances. Uh, they don't even call them performances. They're more called love shares, which I think is awesome. And it also puts like less pressure on people, and also just the the recognition that when people come up to the mic, whatever they're doing, whether it be comedy or music or poetry or spoken word or dance or video, whatever someone wants to share, just even ideas, the idea that it's a love share and that people are sharing from their heart. And 
just feeling very yeah grateful that those places and spaces exist and how wonderful it would be if there are more of them. I often feel that way. There was a map, which was like the Mission Arts Project, and they had a, this is maybe a month ago. I can't keep track of time anymore. I really can't. I have no idea when things happen. I have some idea. Um, part of it, I think, living in the Bay Area where the seasons don't really change. So it's like, what time of year is it? I don't know. It's not snowing. It ha hasn't ever snowed, really. It's not super hot. I don't know what time of year it is. That's tricky. So that I think that's part of it. And then also uh, not necessarily working a Monday through Friday 9 to 5 uh, and just working different days and different hours, um, not necessarily on the on a certain time clock. So I sometimes forget when things happen. Anyway, there's a I want to say maybe a month ago, probably a little bit sooner than that. Outside the Mission Library, they had uh, an open mic, which is really cool, just out on the sidewalk. And I really love when there are performances outside because that means that people who are just walking by, who aren't even there, with the intention of listening or checking it out, end up hearing it. And I think just the the serendipitousness of that is really cool. And how awesome if that would be if there are more of them around, more mics and more places for people to share. So I think that's great. I'm in good a good mood today, which is great. And uh, I'm not going to go into it too much because why, why ruin the mystery, I guess. Um, of course, the, there have been still, I have been feeling very frustrated and triggered by all the, the anti-LGBT legislation that's been going on across the country, especially within North Carolina. And Michael Jordan has actually stepped up against Pat McCrory, uh, which is good. Um, I have comp I mean, my feelings about Michael Jordan, I grew up, I was a kid in the Chicago suburbs and was a diehard Bulls fan. And then I learned uh, recently, within the last few years, again, time, I don't know, that he has invested in, in private prisons and that makes me super sad. Um, however, I was very grateful to hear that he is stepping up to Pat McCrory about the HB2 bill, which is ridiculous. And a lot of folks have been stepping up, which is great. That's one positive thing that has come from these idiot I mean just these asinine laws and people in power who want to create laws and pass legislation that end up harming people who are oftentimes the ones who are most uh, oppressed and uh, hurt and it 